3: Australia, my name is Taylor Reed. was part of the constitutional dialogue process.
4: TILA has been there in the
0: heart of creating a a framework for rethinking our constitution.
1: Referendum engagement group
0: member TILA. You have all these remarkable people like Thomas Mayer and and TILA Reid. We
3: have to understand this concept of the voice is the first step in redistributing power. There does need to be these tough decisions and reparations for what First Nations peoples have lost. This notion of reconciliation the it's not enough.
5: remarkable people.
3: What we need is to get back to these radical roots of the Communist Party. It's going to be very difficult once we succeed for a government to ignore this voice. It
0: will be powerful.
1: Authorised by Matthew Sheehan, Advance Australia, Canberra.
0: Hello and welcome. It's great to have your company. I'll come back to Teela Reid and The Voice in just a moment. It's a packed show once again today. I want to unpack the horrendously biased reporting of the ABC's Four Corners program last Monday night, which was little more than a cheer squad for controversial and experimental gender treatment on children. Bob McCoskery of Family First New Zealand will join me to talk about the movement he's leading across the Tasman that is pushing back on the anti-family agenda there. I'll also give you a sneak peek of the interview Bob did recently with two of the manly seven who refused to wear the pride jersey last year. This hasn't been picked up by mainstream media Anywhere, it's a terrific interview. Also coming up, I'll speak with Michael Kolakossian, the Executive Director of the Armenian National Association of Australia about the humanitarian crisis in the Christian Republic of Artsakh. And of course, uh, Kiralee Smith from Binary joins me as usual. All that and more, don't touch that dial. But first, the voice. Teela Reed is the latest radical architect of the indigenous voice to parliament hiding in plain sight thumbing her nose at Linda Burney and Anthony Albanese. Well, perhaps she's not thumbing her nose at them. They know exactly who she is. She's actually thumbing her nose at all non-Indigenous Australians in the quest to divide the nation. Just like Thomas Mayo, who Fair Australia exposed two weeks ago, Fair Australia has unearthed yet another of the key players working to embed Marxist critical race theory into our constitution. Like Mayo, Reid believes The Voice is about forcing reparations upon white people and redistributing power.
3: We have to understand this concept of the voice is the first step in redistributing power. There does need to be these tough decisions and reparations for what First Nations peoples have lost. This notion of reconciliation, it's not enough. <laughs> the voice the the is authority, burning, can it the voice.
0: Now, also, like Mayo, Reid praises communism, a political ideology based on Marxism responsible for the biggest slaughter of humans in history.
3: What we need is to get back to these radical roots of the Communist Party.
0: Now, she and Mayo seem to know nothing of this party's bloody history. Here's how Prime Minister Albanese described Mayo and Reid in a recent radio interview. All these remarkable people... Yes, it is remarkable to support the Communist Party, given that what we now know about the body count of the 20th century and the fact that it far exceeded even that of the evil Nazis. Both of these remarkable people sit on Albanese's voice referendum working group and Mayo is a member of the board of Yes 23, the official Yes campaign, which is cashed up with $17 million of shareholders' money handed over by our woke corporations. Despite Indigenous Affairs Minister Linda Burney saying the voice would not touch Australia Day, Reid says it will abolish it if it wants to. In April this year, Reed tweeted, it might be the Australian government's preference to keep things like Australia Day, but trying to limit the scope of what the people can advocate for through the voice to change is just stupid, end quote. In 2020, Reid tweeted, uh, reckoning, repa- rec- reckoning reparations and land back. F reconciliation, she said at the time before saying burn your RAPs a reference to reconciliation action plans adopted by more than 2,400 Australian corporations. As former Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson said on Sky News this week, there is a viciousness about some in the Aboriginal political arena. It's clear those running the voice referendum do not share Albanese's public view that the voice is a modest proposal. It's naive to think that the likes of Thomas Mayo and Teela Reid and other like-minded radicals won't demand a central role on The Voice if the constitution is changed at the referendum. With architects of The Voice like Mayo and Reid, Australia is on a path to division, not on the path to reconciliation, respect, and recognition for Indigenous people that we all want. I didn't wake up one day and be like, yeah, I'm trans. No, it's not about going to therapy to fix it. Blocked.
5: It was like doors were closing in her face.
2: This isn't me, the body that I'm in. I don't want to be in this anymore.
1: The bitter war over young people's bodies. It's become uncivilised.
2: There are massive health risks
4: from these experimental medications. To say it's gender activists pushing it on
3: children, why would children choose this if it is so hard?
0: Well, a year since the Tavistock Gender Clinic for Children was closed in London because it was harming children, the ABC and some activist clinicians are fighting to keep Australia's child gender clinics open. The Four Corners program on Monday sought to justify so-called gender-affirming care of children who are confused about their bodies. It was overwhelmingly weighted to the hotly contested idea that children's gender is fluid and not based on biology. Gender affirmation is where children as young as 10 are prescribed puberty blockers to put them on a pathway to cross-sex hormones and even breast and genital removal surgery. Four Corners presented as self-evidently good these controversial and experimental gender conversion treatments which alter children's bodies irreversibly, making them sterile and destroying sexual function. None of the consequences were discussed in any depth. Four Corners seemed focused on discrediting research conducted by courageous clinicians at the New South Wales Children's Hospital Westmead's gender clinic, which showed children were not being helped by gender conversion therapies. The Australian newspaper reported back in March that the Westmead researchers found, and I quote, One of the central justifications for gender-affirming medicine, that it alleviated psychological distress, was not borne out in the experience of the young people studied, with 44 out of 50 patients diagnosed with gender dysphoria reporting ongoing mental health concerns four to nine years after presentation at the gender clinic, many after transitioning," end quote. Now, what these researchers are telling us is that gender transition of children doesn't work. The trouble is, this cuts across the LGBTIQA plus political narrative, which demands yet more publicly funded medical resources so children can change genders with or without parental consent. Laws have been passed in Queensland, the ACT and Victoria, prohibiting doctors, counsellors, priests, and in the case of Victoria, even parents from dissuading children to head down the affirmation path. Jail terms apply. I kid you not. Radical LGBTIQA plus independent MP in the New South Wales Parliament, Alex Greenwich, has vowed to introduce the Victorian model legislation to ban so-called gay conversion therapy here in New South Wales. The Westmead researchers, including paediatric psychiatrist Cassia Kozlawska, Paediatric endocrinologists Jeffrey Ambler and Anne McGuire and physician Joseph Elcardi said this, An unanswered question in the paediatric literature is whether gender-affirming medical treatment improves or does not improve mental health outcomes and quality of life. In the era of evidence-based medicine, the evidence base pertaining to the gender-affirming medical pathway is sparse and for the young people who may regret their choice of pathway at a future point in time, the risks for potential harm are significant." End quote. Now, Four Corners glossed over this and the fact that most European countries have either stopped prescribing puberty blockers to children or are urging a cautious approach. Virtually unheard of, 10 years ago, there is now an epidemic of children presenting at child gender clinics around the nation. In 2014, there were just 211. But by 2021, the number had increased tenfold to 2,067 uh, children presenting at gender clinics, all off the back of LGBTIQA indoctrination programs in our schools, backed up by, pol- uh, by the popularizing of LGBTIQA themes on social media. Melbourne's Royal Children's Hospital had more than 3,370 referrals and last year had 1,095 patients. In contrast, Westmead, uh, where clinicians are pushing for a more cautious approach, had just 145 child patients in 2022. The Queensland Children's Hospital has 642 children waiting for an appointment. Now, giving puberty blockers to children, uh, unless under uh, research conditions, strict research conditions, was banned in England just last month by the National Health Service. Something which got a fleeting mention in the 53 minute Four Corners program presented by LGBTIQA plus activist journalist Patricia Carvelis. The NHS found the evidence for puberty blockers was not strong, uh, hence the ban. However, the ABC is signed up to the LGBTIQA lobby group ACON, which gives points to corporations through an equality index if they promote LGBTIQA agendas. Now, Carvelis is a host at ACON events, but neither her nor the ABC's association with the activist group was disclosed. Instead, Four Corners chose to focus on the tragic suicide of a 14-year-old girl who it was claimed took her life because she could not access gender conversion therapy at Westmead. Now, child psychologist Dr Gillian Spencer, who has been punished by her employer, the Queensland Children's Hospital's gender clinic, because Dr Spencer spoke out against puberty blockers, uh, she was given a cameo on The Four Corners show uh, as just one of three dissenting voices whose views were not taken seriously. Invited to speak on Bed Fordham's 2GB radio program the day after Four Corners went to air, Spencer was able to say what Four Corners was not telling the public.
4: Uh, the show did something irresponsible, which was to frighten parents with a tragic story of a child's death and claim that it was due to a lack of access to gender services. And I'm aware that there are parents with kids in the car driving to school, but I just need to let parents know that the risk of death for children with gender dysphoria is the same as that of children with other mental health problems. And there's no evidence to show that, the, that social transition or the use of puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones reduces the death rate or improves psychological functioning. Um, so, to my knowledge, never before in mental health have, has um, the death rate been used to promote interventions to children that are so poorly evidence-based and um, have such a high risk of harm.
0: Now, sadly, the LGBTIQA political activists and their friends in the media always play the suicide card as a way of shutting down debate, knowing that journalists will rarely do their job and investigate properly. The New South Wales Health Minister, Ryan Park, has taken the bait. Instead of following the European lead and reviewing the harms to children and looking at those unanswered questions in the paediatric literature, he's launched an inquiry into why more children can't be put on the gender conversion therapy conveyor belt. With those pesky Westmead researchers discredited, LGBTIQA+ political activism rolls on, job done. The ABC can cash in its Acon Equality Index points. Well, joining me now to unpack the Four Corners report is our regular contributor Kiralee Smith from Binary. Kiralee, what did you make of Four Corners on Monday night?
4: Uh, It was painful, Lyle. It was very difficult to watch, very heartbreaking on many levels but infuriating on other levels. You know, the fact that it opened up with the reinforcement of gender stereotypes, you know, that because a boy likes a dress or pushing a pram or, you know, wearing pink, he's suddenly a girl and it's absolute nonsense. It's ridiculous. And you know what? I've never heard... A, a satisfying argument or point of anybody who wants to appropriate the opposite sex of using anything but stereotypes, you know. Um, we're accused of this, you know, um, putting stereotypes on people, but we're the ones saying, no, let boys be feminine, let girls be tomboys. It's, it's insane.
0: That's right. Don't push them into this pathway. I, I thought it was extraordinary, clearly that there was no discussion in the whole 53-minute program of the fact that this phenomenon barely existed uh, 10 years ago. I mean, the numbers show it's increased tenfold uh, since uh, about 2011. A- and yet um, Patricia Carvelis, the, the uh, ABC journalist who was presenting this, who did the research, uh, didn't make any comment at all on the fact that this is a, a new and it's a modern phenomenon.
4: Yeah, and, and as you've already noted today, Lyle, it, you know, she and the ABC are both ACON subscribed. Uh, you know, they push an agenda. Uh, they don't want the facts to come out. And these are the facts. Professor Diana Kenny did refer to the rapid onset gender dysphoria phenomenon that is happening, that, uh, you know, these numbers are out of control and they are very recent and very new. And uh, when you... Do- We don't even have to dive that deeply into the figures or into ACON or into the activism to see that uh, they really are taking these stereotypes, taking these vulnerable young people who who have genuine struggles, but their genuine struggles are in the areas of autism, of mental health, of eating disorders, of, um, you know, the, the very normal and common uh, expressions of adolescence and struggles that people go through, and yet all of a sudden the solution is to make these children into lifelong medically dependent people who will not be cured or not resolve their gender identity issues but will have them reinforced in their life every single day when they have to take pills or injections or have surgery and then all the horrible repercussions that come from that.
0: Yeah that's right I thought um, Diana Kenny uh, didn't get a very good go on the program neither did uh, Dr Gillian Spencer and I played her clip uh, earlier, uh, and they had a a, a token um, detransitioner. But again, um, the the concerns that these three people raised were were just glossed over and received a minuscule amount uh, of the time. Um, So, you know, this was incredibly biased, as you say, ABC has signed up to ACON, um, which is a a lobby group for these issues. So um, it's hard to believe that objective journalism, that this could be passed off as objective journalism. It's, It's a shame on our ABC.
4: Uh absolutely is. You know, the, the sinister music that's played when anyone criticises gender ideology and the sympathetic, tear-jerking music that's played for everyone else, the conflation of, you know, genuine medical issues with an ideology, uh, you know, it, it was very predictable. I didn't think that it was going to be anything better, but it's just still disappointing when our taxpayer-funded uh, national broadcaster just so blatantly insults our intelligence and uh, and disregards the medical evidence and uh, puts these young people at greater risk. I believe by pushing a narrative uh, that they've done.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, they're playing the the suicide card. Uh, I addressed that again in the editorial, and um and uh, Dr. Gillian Spencer, brilliant there. But um they they just. Uh, This just seemed to me, this whole 53 minutes seemed like a hit job on those very brave clinicians at Westmead Children's Hospital who published that research uh, to say effectively that transitioning children uh, to another gender doesn't work. That's what their research found. Uh, Anyone who watched, I think, Four Corners on Monday night could see that uh, those arguments weren't taken seriously. But... It left an impression, a vibe that somehow uh, that transitioning children, putting them on this path to puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones and surgery is the only way to go. It left people without hope and it leaves parents without any other, other hope.
4: Yeah, well, the whole ideology is built on a lie. Nobody can change their sex. And it is cruel and unkind to reinforce that lie and to suggest that affirmation pathways are the only solution because they're not. They're very inappropriate. Countries that have bothered to do the research and have bothered to uh, hold inquiries like the UK, like Sweden, Norway, Finland, many states in the US, They all draw the same conclusion that this is not appropriate for children and as Dr Gillian Spencer said we shouldn't be putting children on puberty blockers at all. They're used off-label, they're harming children and it's unacceptable. We need an inquiry here in Australia to uh, reveal the same things.
0: Uh, We absolutely do and and sadly you know that the hapless New South Wales health minister, as I said in in the editorial, um, he's gone the other way. He's saying we've got to have an inquiry into how we put these children on this conveyor belt towards, you know, puberty blockers, etc. Crazy stuff. I I think some of the um, reaction online was fascinating too, Um, Kiralee. uh, I noted the Greens member uh, in the federal parliament for the seat of Brisbane, Stephen Bates. He made it very clear in a tweet and uh, hopefully we can get this up on the screen uh, that there is no both sides of this debate, just Hatred and bigotry. Now, this is a member of the federal parliament. This is pretty typical of the pro-LGBTIQA plus reaction on social media. Uh, What are we to make of this?
4: Well, first of all, where's the opposition? Like, where is the opposition? Where is the coalition? Where are you know the Nationals, the Liberal Party, and others standing up against this? Because it's absolute nonsense. Again. Gender ideology is based on lies. It is hateful. It is cruel. It is unkind to lie to these children and to um, push them down this pathway of making them lifelong medical uh, students, and it, uh, patients, sorry. It really upsets me. It really yeah. uh, is a difficult thing. And then for people like Dr Gillian Spencer to be stood down from her job for making uh, clinical observations yep. uh, based on research, based on evidence, is just appalling. Yeah
0: and the, and then the Greens having the temerity to say there's no other side of the argument. I mean how, how does someone who is in the federal parliament say that any issue only has one side and, and everyone else should be cancelled? I mean you know th- these people shouldn't be taken seriously in a liberal democracy. Now Kiralee um, I want to just switch to something else which is obviously related to the subject. um, But again, very disturbing and and again, showing the radical left's uh, intolerance and the ABC's incredible bias. Um, This happened on ABC Radio uh, on Wednesday uh, of this week. ABC presenter, Virginia Trioli, she's quite a celebrity presenter, journalist on the ABC. She received a phone call through the talkback lines from a mainstream Australian. How this woman got through the switch at the ABC uh, is, is beyond me. But here's what happened.
5: Don't breastfeed, and um, we need to be able to have a conversation that balances these perspectives. And yeah, online it's... is where we are having that conversation. Yeah, it's curious. Uh, as a woman, and I hear from people like you, Elizabeth, and you're most welcome to to call in and, and have that view, and for me to for all of us to hear it this morning. But as a as a, a woman, and as a woman who was uh, born with uh, a uterus, I've got to say that uh, the what you're talking about from the e-safety commissioner and also the, the points of view as trans groups, it, it doesn't bother me and it doesn't in any way take away or detract from my experience uh, as a woman, from growing up as a woman, from being from a woman, a woman who's given birth and a woman who's breastfed. It just doesn't bother me one bit that that terminology might change and might be a bit more inclusive. So it's strange, isn't it? it, how, how it uh, can it upset people it like you? Doesn't it concern you? that men are attempting to sabotage the relationships of their partners and their babies and trying to push them out of the way. No, and attempt no, it to d- no, it doesn't, because I, I don't see that's what they're doing. Virginia.
2: No, it, it, it doesn't are, bother
5: me at all. It, so you, you're in favour of men uh, using babies to affirm their gender identities as breastfeeding mothers? Oh, my goodness, Elizabeth. That's not what's going on there. If they're, if they're, what's going no, on but if they're a trans woman, they're a trans no woman. That's, it, they're a trans woman, just not a no cisgendered idea. woman. I have Sorry, no I have no idea? idea? Trans women are trying to affirm their gender identity, okay. by attempting to induce lactation. It's happening. All right, I'm going to let you go there. Um, and uh, in the interest of hearing all views, and yes, I know many of you will be cross at me that that conversation went as long as it did, but I think it's perfectly pla- fine for a, an open line like this to actually have those views heard within boundaries. And uh, Elizabeth believes that that's what's going to be curtailed as part of uh, free speech curtailment, you know, that, that might be imposed on the social media giants. Let's see if that's how that plays out. But we can get to all sorts of issues related to that when off the spin uh, doctor.
0: There's no words for that, uh, Kiralee. I mean, the sneering, the patronising, the, the, condes- condes- oh. condes- the condescending, condescending tone of yeah. that, uh, the, the barely disguised contempt. Um, that's our ABC.
4: Oh, it it was like, that's all I could hear was the condescending tone and the complete and utter narcissism. You know, if it doesn't affect her, then it's not a problem for anyone, which is just outrageous. uh, A
0: woman with a uterus? A woman with a uterus? That's how she, that's how Virginia Trioli identifies now. Why why can't you just be a woman? Uh, uh.
4: Exactly. Look, it's just crazy because uh, like there's so many issues here, but I think the main issue is that babies should never be used to legitimise or excuse the fetishes of males or anyone in in this um, (laughs) instance. But in this instance, um, you know, the males, some of the ones we're talking about are ones that, You know, they're all over social media with their fetish, with their nipple clamps, with everything else going on and breastfeeding or, you know, imitating breastfeeding a baby. They can't breastfeed a baby. They can't replicate mother's milk. It's a very poor imitation and it's not for the baby's benefit. And this isn't about transgender or anyone else. This is about what's best for the baby. And using a baby in this uh, instance is not what's best for the baby. So I think it's absolutely disgraceful that, uh, that she and others would excuse this kind of behaviour.
0: Yeah, um, all I can say Kiralee is we must urgently defund the ABC, it is the enemy of normal uh, mainstream Australians. Kiralee, uh, that's all we have time for today but uh, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us again.
4: Pleasure, thanks for having me Lyle.
0: Well, it's great to have my friend, Bob McCoskree, the CEO of Family First New Zealand joining me. He's our semi-regular trans-Tasman correspondent. Bob, um, it was great to have the privilege of being at your forum on the family just last month. You had 900 delegates uh, there in Auckland and you'd assembled a world-class lineup of family policy speakers, including former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, John Anderson. Um, There was a real buzz throughout the conference. Do you sense that something is shifting in New Zealand? Are people beginning to stir? Are they pushing back and saying enough is enough?
2: Yeah, hi, Lyle. Good to be on the show again. And, uh, yeah, I was surprised that we actually let some Australians into the country, (laughs) Uh, John Anderson, you, uh, and also John Steenhoff from the Human Rights Law Alliance as well, who was a speaker. Yeah, look, uh, it has been growing. We used to sort of average about 300 to these conferences, but in the last two that we've had, it's been 800 and now 800 plus, and there seems to be an appetite for pushing back. And so that's why we called it... Uh, building a courage culture and it's about overcoming the cancel culture it's about people standing up for their faith uh, no matter the consequences uh, and identifying also that there's a new cultural woke religion that's being rammed down on our on our society and uh, we need to learn to recognize it and stand up to it.
0: Yeah you, you made that point really well actually in, in your talk Bob you made the case that this is a religion and I'm looking forward to you sharing that at uh, the Family First Conference here in Australia Mm. in September. I'll talk more about that at the end of the show. But uh, at your conference, Mm. you showed um, on the big screen um, a video interview that you managed to get with two of the Manly Seven. And for people who don't know, the Manly Seven uh, were the Warringah Sea Eagles players and uh, the two that you interviewed, Josh uh, Aloli, if I've got that uh, pronunciation right, and and Toff Sipley. Uh, Both were part of that group that refused to wear the Pride jersey last year. How hard was it, Bob, to track these guys down and convince them to speak on the record about their experience?
2: Well, uh, I know Josh's brother, so I sort of had a connection there. But uh, at the time that that actually happened, we put out a uh, supportive meme because uh, a number of the players were Kiwi players in the Manly Seven that were making the stand. And so we said we stand with them. Uh, and that people should be free to believe in the same way that we stood with um, with uh, Israel Falau and Maria uh, at the time that they were also you know under the pump for speaking their faith. And so uh, we made contact. Um, I wanted them to actually come over and speak in person, but they were preparing for a game, which fortunately they won uh, two days after the conference. So so I grabbed my uh, cameraman and we went over to uh, Sydney and. Uh, did the interview with them? Look, I found them just down to earth, humble guys, who simply felt that by wearing the flag, they were bowing, down, uh, wearing the shirt. Sorry, mm-hmm. they were bowing down to the culture, and uh, we need to understand, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that we we shouldn't bow down. We should politely refuse. Uh, we need to make these stands, no matter the consequences. And look, they did suffer a lot of consequences. I guess a little bit different to the Israel Folau case was that there was seven of them and they were able to lock arms and get yeah. support from each other. And I guess that's, you know, that's important that we're amongst uh, groups of friends involved in church life, etc. so that, you know, we can find kindred spirit and we can lock arms on some of these tough issues. But, Uh, Having said that, Lyle, we need to be willing to stand alone when we need to, especially in our workplace, on our social media pages. Absolutely. Uh, And so it was great. Yeah, it was was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah,
0: well, let's take a little bit of a look at that conversation, at some of what they had to say. Going way
3: back in history, flags and uh, things like that have always been a representation of of your allegiance, of your support. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we're to wear the LGB flag, on our jersey, then, then we're endorsing a whole lot of things that we don't believe in. Whether it's um, uh, the attack on family, the confusion about sexuality and and, and gender, um, marriage, and what we believe marriage is uh, between a man and a woman, um, all of those foundational beliefs in Christianity, um, like Toff said, they're the exact opposite. Mm.
0: Now, now Bob, I thought that was one of the clearest uh, explanations of what the rainbow flag actually symbolizes. Um, More people need to be aware of what Josh just said.
2: Well, I think uh, that, you know, for people who who may be Christian or identify with faith, there will be uh, things of identification uh, that they will use and there will be symbols that represent their faith. Now, for the new cultural religion of, uh, and they have their own deity, it's the DEI of diversity, equity, and inclusion. But, of course, what it actually is is deception, inequity, and exclusion. And it's exclusion of people who hold certain views, for example, who believe that you're born male or female and you can't just choose to be the opposite sex. And even people not of faith understand that biological truth. you know, a classic example is J.K Rowling who is being cancelled mm. because she holds to a biological truth. So when you uh, wear and have to bow down to wearing that rainbow uh, jersey or flag or being mandated to put personal pronouns in your email signature, then your preferred pronouns, then uh, what you're doing is you're identifying with that cultural religion. And I think people are starting to push back and say, well, no, I don't identify with that and I'm not going to wear that jersey or I'm not going to put my personal pronouns, uh, you know, I'm not going to bow down to this new cultural religion which is being rammed down. And so I say all power to them and I, you know, as I said to them at the end of that interview that uh, Reverend Billy Graham said when a brave man takes a stand, it stiffens the spines of others. And I think what they have done is that they've stiffened the spines of others to make a similar stand and, of course, as we all know, there's no pride round uh, in the NRL this year simply because there was this Pushback and good on them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That is an important consequence of their courage uh, mm. that this has killed the pride round in the National Rugby League mm. in Australia. And, and that's a good thing. Mm. And I'd really encourage everyone to watch the full 16 minutes of that extraordinary interview Two beautiful Christian men showing uh, a real profile and courage and, and you know, congratulations, mm. Bob, on, on securing that interview. I'd encourage mm. everyone to go to familyfirst.nz. Um, oh, sorry, you give the website. Mm-hmm. I think it's familyfirst.org.nz. Yep. Um, and, and watch that no, online.
2: got yeah. yeah. Or on our YouTube channel. Mm.
0: There you go. Sorry about messing that up. Um, the other blockbuster interview, Bob, that you uh, secured and which you also showed on the big screen at your conference was with 18 year old Chloe Cole, one of the world's most famous detransitioners. Let's take a look.
2: So, I'm 18 year olds, years old right now, but I used to be transgender and I transitioned medically uh, between the ages of 13 and 16. Um, I started socially transitioning, changing my name and my presentation at the age of 12. 12? Yeah. I was diagnosed with gender dysphoria shortly after I turned, turned 13. And just about half a year after that, I was put on puberty blockers and then testosterone. And when I was a sophomore in high school, I don't know what the equivalent in New Zealand would be, but uh, I was 15 years old I've and I yet, I yet. underwent a double yet, mastectomy. Yet. A double mastectomy? Yeah.
0: It's uh, heartbreaking, yeah. isn't it, to hear that? This is someone who's 18 yeah. years old and as a 15 year old had both of her breasts cut off. Um, mm. What do we say to that?
2: Yeah, and one of the uh, interesting bits in the interview was that I said to her, you know, when you were being diagnosed, were your parents told that they had to go along with your uh, identity and your dysphoria? or else they'd have a dead daughter, you know, better to have an alive transition son. And she just immediately jumped and said, oh yeah, 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 of course they were told that. And that's what parents are being told. There's no evidence for it. It's being used as a sledgehammer to basically get parents on board with this uh, whole uh, affirmation type approach, but it's, it's destructive. Look, Uh, Sitting with Chloe, she's 18 years old, and yet I found more wisdom coming from her in that short 10-minute interview than I've heard out of most politicians on this issue. And that's because she has lived experience and she's got lived long-term consequences. I mean, she can't have children. She won't be able to breastfeed. Uh, You know, she has lost the ability to be a mother because she's been part of this grand social experiment. And, look, I actually... Lyle, well, with all credit to Australians, and as you know, I don't give much credit to Australia <laughs> very often, but uh, they are actually—you know—you're starting to see some major pushback on the whole chemicalization and castration of uh, gender dysphoric kids. We are—we aren't seeing that in New Zealand. We're still on this juggernaut being pushed by the government and government-funded groups in the Ministry of Health, uh, and so you know. Um, I think what the European countries are doing, Australia is starting to look and see the UK as well. People are starting to wake up, hopefully not too late.
0: Yeah, look, uh, and we'll always bring you on this show to um, give Australians a bit of a backhand. Bob, thanks very much. But uh, look, it, it is a roller coaster ride here. Um, yes, we have seen some incredible reporting in the Australian newspaper, leaked letters from the Endocrine Society of Australia saying these puberty blockers don't work. Um, surgeons coming out saying we should stop cutting the breasts off children. Um, they put it as starkly as that. But unfortunately, our Four Corners program on the national broadcaster just this past Monday night uh, did a big snow job and um it was it was really a cheer squad mm. as i said at the top of the program or mm. earlier in the program yeah. uh, for this whole uh gender affirmation thing so our our, our media and our p- politicians are doubling down on it but but chloe has actually been instrumental in seeing these gender clinics banned in parts of the us uh, her advocacy has been quite yeah. successful hasn't it
2: yeah it has i mean she's uh, been to a number of states uh where she's been able to share her experience and i think you know uh i think i've learned this in social debates and probably have as well lyle that often it's not the best argument that wins that it's the best story mm. it's the lived experience yeah. and what the uh, mainstream media will never tell you are the chloe stories they'll never tell you about the regret the de-transitioners you, they won't talk about people like walt Heyer, who we also mm. had at our conference yeah, terrific uh, and even kira bell you know yeah. they, they struggled to even talk about kira uh, bell so from the uk uh, and so that's why we need to get these stories out. And I think we've, you know, we have new opportunities through the show that you're hosting, through uh, social media channels, and we need to take opportunity of those to get the real story out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I was interested, um, Bob, in in talking to you while I was over there at your conference, and I think you made the comment publicly that your media are just, um, they're they're not covering your stuff anymore. You used to get um, massive media coverage uh, in the early years. You've been going 17 years. You've pretty much been blackballed now. But you made the comment that we are the media, your social media, because of interviews like this one with Chloe and the Manly Seven and many other things, your mcblog it's going gangbusters, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I just checked before we came on to this interview to see uh, how many had watched the Manly Seven, and I mean, we'd had about 16,000 views uh, through our just one of our Facebook channels, through YouTube it was up to about 5,000, uh, and I mean, we have a, a database of just under 60,000 that we email, so it, it, the, the word is getting out there, and I think, yeah, people are getting turned off from the mainstream media. Uh, rightly so because they just don't feel they're getting a a balanced view and they're not hearing both sides of these important social debates so that's why we made the effort to uh, go to chloe and go to the manly seven uh you know if, if, if if we can't get them over here then you know we need to make this effort and it's it's really important to hear their stories
0: Yeah, it's interesting Bob, Um, this is what you can do through alternative media uh, channels and it's very powerful, but uh, you were telling me just before we came on air today that you want to pay the mainstream media for a full page advertisement in one of your major newspapers uh, as part of your What is a Woman campaign leading up to the election, Um, they won't take your money.
2: Yeah, we want to uh, basically get people asking political candidates to define what is a woman. And our, our warning is if they can't define what is a woman, then why would you let them or put them in charge of other important exactly. decisions affecting the nation? Uh, so it was just, it's just a simple ad, what is a woman? And to go to our website, whatisawoman.nz, which we're launching in a week or two, uh, and we tried to place these full-page ads, they uh, have just... Uh, constantly stonewalled, want to see the website, want to see we've, we've gathered together a whole lot of women from around New Zealand uh, to say what is a woman from the voices of women and they want to see every statement that's being made by every woman uh, involved in this campaign. Actually, we, we actually had the same problem when we were during the uh, uh, COVID lockdowns we were pushing for rapid antigen tests to be used as a uh, alternative to the vaccine mandate uh, and so we had a campaign called Don't Divide Us and uh, it was a petition that was uh, signed I think by about 80,000 in the end but once again they just stonewalled they they just didn't want that narrative out there and I, it's amazing they just don't want the money uh, if it doesn't suit their narrative and the problem is that they don't need the money for advertising because the government is funding them through this kind of New Zealand on air uh, like your ABC so, you know, expect to get the government narrative coming through anything that's government funded.
0: Yeah, all all of these trends should ring big alarm bells for anyone who understands why the freedom of the press is important to a liberal democracy. And uh, certainly you're losing that fast in New Zealand. Thank goodness for the social media alternative uh, channels. And uh, thank goodness for conferences like you've uh, just run, Bob, where 900 people uh, turn up. Uh, Bob, um, you're an inspiration. Thanks for fighting the good fight over there across the Tasman. And uh, we look forward to you joining us again sometime in the near future. appreciate your time today. Thanks, Lyle. Now, more than 120,000 Armenian Christians remain trapped in their landlocked Republic of Artsakh after the government of Azerbaijan, an Islamic petro-dictatorship, blocked all roads in and out. 30,000 children are unable to go to school and a humanitarian disaster is unfolding. The Armenian National Association of Australia has been calling upon the Albanese government to put pressure on Azerbaijan to open the corridor but so far these pleas have fallen on deaf ears with the Foreign Minister Penny Wong unresponsive. Michael uh, Kolakossian is the Executive Director of the Armenian National Association which represents 50,000 Armenians living here in Australia. He joins me now. Michael, why is the Azerbaijan government putting pressure on the people of this autonomous region of Artsakh?
1: Well, Lyle, thank you. Firstly, for for having me, it's great to join you to to speak about this issue and bring uh, greater awareness to the persecution of Christian Armenians in, in the Republic of Artsakh. Absolutely. Um, at the at the core of at the core of the issue uh, is a territorial dispute. Artsakh, also also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, is a de facto independent region in in the South Caucasus. It borders Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Iran. Um, However, following the the collapse of the Ottoman and Russian empires uh, in the early 20th century, nagorno karabakh or Artsakh came under the control of of Soviet authorities. And at the time, the then uh, Commissioner of Nationalities, Joseph Stalin, as part of his divide and conquer rule, decided to place uh, Artsakh Artsakh in in the Soviet uh, authority of, of Azerbaijan as an autonomous oblast. Um, It remained that way, unfortunately, for many years. The Armenian population was autonomous but still persecuted by the central Azerbaijani government. However, in the late 1990s, the people of Artsakh held a referendum and declared their rights uh, to independence and their rights to self-determination. Uh, the right to self-determination is a is a fundamental human right uh, outlined by international law. It's something that the people of Artsakh uh, conducted democratically. 82% of the population turned out for that referendum, and, and 99.8% voted in in favour. Um, for self-determination. The people of Artsakh have lived in that region for millennia. Uh, it has always been the ancestral homeland of Armenians with many monasteries, churches uh, in that area. However, uh, the Azerbaijani authorities uh, and the, that Islamic Petro dictatorship has, has claimed the region for for now over a century. Um, so the Azerbaijani uh, regime intends to suffocate as part of this blockade and their ongoing aggression, which we've seen since the 2020 Artsakh war, to suffocate and starve the Armenians there uh, to force them to eth- uh, to ethnically cleanse the region of its Armenian inhabitants.
0: Hard to believe, Michael, um, here in 2023, you know, you're know, you using terms like uh, ethnic cleansing and persecution of Christians who, have, as you say, lived there for hundreds of years and, and, and millennia. How, how did the um, Armenians of Artsakh and, and that part of the region, How did they survive historically uh, as Christians um, in in, in a region that did become uh, highly Islamicized under the Ottoman Empire?
1: Well, Armenians were a group that uh, liked to survive. Post the Armenian genocide in in 1915 to 23, 1.5 million Armenians were massacred. Uh, a majority of our community here in Australia are the descendants of survivors of that genocide. Uh, unfortunately, we had to flee our ancestral homelands in what is now Eastern Turkey, Anatolia, um, and, and many Armenians were forced to, to move to the Middle East or to current-day Armenia. Um, but the people of Artsakh have have lived on this land, as, as I mentioned, for so many centuries, uh, and they, they they refused to leave their homes, their properties, Uh, everything they hold so dearly uh, and Uh, no matter what the Azerbaijani regime tries to throw at them, whether it's uh, indiscriminately bombing uh, civilian settlements, whether it's currently a blockade, uh, cutting off gas pipelines, electricity, the people of Artsakh remain committed to that that right to self-determination, which is upheld under Article 1 of the the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights. Uh, They fundamentally believe that they have a right to live in their land and to live in a democracy, and, and they're not... Uh, willing to allow, you know, a regime like Azerbaijan, which has been run by, uh, it's been run by the same family for, for three decades now, yep. to threaten them with an iron fist.
0: So, so Michael, it's intriguing to me then, um, you know, the uh, is Islamic people who live here in Australia and other parts of the world, they say Islam is a religion of peace. Where are the Islamic leaders condemning the... Um, the actions of the Azerbaijan government in persecuting these people uh, in Artsakh. Uh, are there other Muslim leaders who will who will stand against this sort of tyranny and and you know ethnic and religious cleansing?
1: Yeah, well, look, I think at at the core of the current blockade, any any sort of any civilian, any Australian would condemn this humanitarian crisis. I think. But, when but you where, talk are, where about are the 100... public
0: voices in the Islamic community condemning an Islamic state that's clearly acting? you know, not in accordance with international law and established conventions.
1: Well, you're right, Lyle. Unfortunately, we haven't had had those sentiments being shared by members of, of uh, the Islamic community or leaders of, of the Islamic community. I think uh, it has to do with the influence of Azerbaijan and Turkey and, and the role of, of their leaders silencing those who, who would even speak up about this issue. Um, because I, I fundamentally believe that you know there are those in the community in the Islamic faith who who would stand against this, yeah. who would stand against this blockade. I agree with um, that. Mm. But but they're but they're silenced by dictators, uh, oil oil dictatorships, two dictatorships who not only deny the Armenian genocide but who actively uh, and and c- conduct aggression against against Christian mm. Armenians today. Mm. Um, so there is there is no. Appetite from those regimes to allow people to speak up against this humanitarian crisis. And it's unfortunate that we haven't had those sentiments shared here in Australia ab- as ab- of yet.
0: Absolutely, uh, you, you're spot on, Michael. And um, you know the, the core of this problem, or a big part of the core of it, is the fact that Turkey um, you know, doesn't acknowledge the Armenian genocide in 1915, which happened under the cover of the Dardanelles campaign, which uh, Australians and New Zealanders uh, fought so heroically in at Gallipoli. Um, But all these years later, you know, we've we've got this persecution continuing as if we haven't learnt the lessons of that original genocide. Why is the Albanese government then uh, so reluctant to speak up about what is clearly a a humanitarian crisis uh, looming in Artsakh?
1: Well, the Armenian National Committee of Australia, we've made several pleas on behalf of our community to the Albanese government through uh, Senator Penny Wong, the Foreign Affairs Minister of Australia, we've called on her government, uh, sorry, the Albanese government and uh, M- Minister Wong in in her position as Foreign Minister, to call out Azerbaijan to to condemn the blockade and to stand with the international community, the likes of the European Parliament, France, the U.S., Canada, uh, who have all called on Azerbaijan to open the road of life. It's it's considered the road of life because 400 tons of of, of goods go through that road on a daily basis which hasn't happened for over 200 days now um, and we're, we're encouraging our foreign minister to stand in line with uh, our allies democratic countries who have called on Azerbaijan to do this and use its well-respected voice in the international community to amplify the concerns of local Australians local Armenian Australians the Albanese government hasn't engaged with our community on this I- on this issue uh, as effectively as as we hoped. Uh, we have sent, as I mentioned, numerous appeals. Our, our most recent appeal has gone unanswered. Uh, in the in the lead up to the 200th day of the blockade, which was on the 29th of June. Um, and the reasons for that are not justifiable. We're talking. You, you mentioned that it's a humanitarian crisis. We're not. We're not asking for the Australian government to comment on the territorial uh, dispute that is currently taking place between the people of Artsakh and, and the dictatorship of Azerbaijan. We're asking the Australian government to do one simple thing: stand with the International Court of Justice, the top judicial organ of the United Nations, which is. Uh, ordered provisional measures on Azerbaijan to open the corridor. It's as simple as that. Uh, an Australian judge, Hilary Charlesworth, is a member of the ICJ. Uh, she voted in favour of those provisional measures. Uh, so we are asking our government, the government that represents us, to echo the sentiments of of, uh, of J- uh, Justice Charlesworth and the ICJ more broadly and, and its Australia's, Australia's allies. Uh, the reluctance could stem from... The economic relationships that Azerbaijan has with Australia, it could stem from Turkey's role uh, and and so-called as an, a so-called ally of Australia uh, and its its uh, its threats against. Uh, Australia for things like the genocide, but also because the uh, Australian ambassador is based in Ankara, and and Turkey and Azerbaijan have such a great relationship that any condemnation of Azerbaijan would would cause disruption uh, by Turkey. So these these are the sentiments that we're feeling on the ground. Um, but to our community, to to Christians, to our allies, whether they're from the Greek, Assyrian, Jewish, Kurdish communities, uh, this isn't uh, a justifiable response from from the foreign minister or the Albanese government.
0: No, it's absolutely not, um, Michael. And uh, look, what can Christian groups do in particular to support uh, these 120,000 Christians that are trapped there uh, and that are being persecuted, um, potentially facing a a genocide? What can Australian Christians do to support your community here in Australia and to put pressure on the government to take a different approach?
1: Well, because of the the commentary from the international community and the awareness that's been raised, particularly from genocide groups as well, Genocide Watch, uh, the Lemkin Institute for Genocide Prevention, the International Association of Genocide Scholars, who are all issuing red flag alerts or or statements uh, notifying the international community of the risk of genocide. We're doing our bit to to amplify that and raise awareness here in Australia. The Armenian National Committee of Australia, in the lead up to the 200 days of the blockade, uh, launched a parliamentary petition uh, calling on the Australian parliament and government to Uh, stand in line with the International Court of Justice and prevent a second Armenian genocide by calling on Azerbaijan to open Mm. the corridor.
0: So, Where can people go to sign that petition, uh, Michael?
1: That petition, uh, it's an e-petition on the Australian government's, uh, on the Australian parliament website. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can simply type in e-petition and it'll take you to that link. It's on page two. Um, you simply need to verify your email uh, when when they send you a link. You can also uh, look for the link on the Armenian National Committee of Australia's social media platforms. It's it's pretty much everywhere. So we're really encouraging our community and the the Christian community to get behind us on this and and help sign that petition.
0: Fantastic. Um, well, so I certainly urge everyone way. to to do that, Michael. Um, Michael, let's just hope that this is not part of uh, what many Christians. In Australia, are seeing as, as quite a hostile uh, federal government. We, we've seen the uh, forced takeover of the Calvary Hospital in Canberra, and the Albanese government backing uh, the radical actions of the ACT government to, to take that land and property. Uh, and we're seeing, you know, obviously a, a lack of response to the persecution of Christians overseas. Um, let's let's really hope that the uh, Albanese government picks up its game. Uh, we can start by at least getting behind your community and signing. That e-position, e-petition. Michael, thank you so much for being with us today and helping uh, shine a light on uh, what's happening in, in this part of the world. Thank you
1: very much. Thank you for having me and, and thank you for allowing us to bring attention to this important issue.
0: Well, before I go, just a quick reminder about the Family First National Conference here in Sydney on Friday, September 1 and Saturday, September 2. We've got a terrific lineup of speakers headed by former Deputy Prime Minister, John Anderson, and of course, two of our guests from today's program, Bob McCoskery and Kiralee Smith. Daniel Wilde, the Deputy Director of the Institute for Public Affairs will also be there along with a whole host of others. This conference is unique for a political party because we'll be talking about the issues that the mainstream parties have abandoned. The place of marriage and public policy, human rights for the unborn babies, the truth about gender, a sensible policy on energy and economics and how to fix the cost of living crisis. You won't want to miss this event. Together, you and I can build a political party to shake up and change politics for good in this nation. It will be held at Chatswood in Sydney, where there's easy access to public transport and ample cheap parking available for conference delegates. Register today at the Family First website, familyfirstparty.org.au. Uh, you don't have to be a party member uh, or a, uh, just, just an interested supporter and an observer. You'll all be welcome. That website again, familyfirstparty.org.au. Please get your tickets today. I hope to see you there. Well, that's it for this week. Make sure you check out the ADHTV website and download the app so you can keep up with Australia's leading voices for common sense. I'll be back streaming at 12 noon next Friday, uh, but as always, here on demand at the ADHTV site. Thanks again for your company. Until next week, keep speaking up.